Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. With me today is Paul Davis. Paul is a musician and a thinker, and he has a great uh, depth of experience as as a gay African-American man. He has uh, not been quiet in this debate, and he has been a voice of reason for our group of friends as we have struggled to understand each other and our points of view. So I want to welcome you today, Paul, uh, to the Allies Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So, Paul, um, I'm going to start with maybe one of the most important people in our lives, our mothers. Your mom passed away 23 years ago, right? You are correct. But she shaped your worldview. She was a kind woman. She was a singer. She uh, put up with your shenanigans as you became who you are. Why is it so important to have a person like that in your life? And how does it affect who you become? Aha. Okay. Um, I think the most important factor is she was a balanced personality. She, um, her feathers could be ruffled, but it took a lot and they smoothed back down pretty quickly. Um, uh, which is a bit of a trait on my mom's side of the family. They're a very humorous family, uh, to the point of being corny. But we love having fun and enjoying people. We're not afraid to interact. And um, and also professionally, she and my father both dealt with the public. So I think there's that learned nature of knowing how to deal with people without getting too far out of hand. How is that? How does that help? Because my mother was the head of customer service for a bunch of different companies. And there is something about people who deal with the public where I don't know if it's a thicker skin or it's an ability to deflect. Um, why is that so important or useful? Maybe. I think it's what you said. I think it's also that you just end up meeting so many types of people that, um, you know, the people connect a different way or speak or express themselves a different way. And you're less likely to take things personally. I think you're more understanding of when someone is just venting as opposed to venting at you. Mm. Um, well, let me, let me, let me think more of, or maybe we can explore more about that. When you, and I look at your group of friends and it's an eclectic group. I find that you never turn people down. You never cut people out of the debate. Why is it so important for, for you to not give up? to not exclude a voice, even if they could be diametrically opposed to the things you believe. But I think that's the core of understanding, right? So one of the biggest flaws I think we have right now is it's so convenient for people to streamline their source of all information. You go to your favorite channel. Now that there's a thousand, you go to your favorite news source. And we know now that the news sources we have in our lifetime are not the ones we had as children. Mm. They, are, they are all slanted in one direction or another for the most part. So even the most loyal viewer or listener has to 
straight to the other side to hear what the other side is saying, or else you'll never get a balanced view. So I believe in debate. I, I, I like spitting out the ideas and getting down to the heart of what makes the difference in your way of seeing a situation compared to mine. Well, so tell me about that. What's give me a feel for you. What's the question that nobody asks you that they should be asking you? Um, in general, people will ask me. Uh, I have that approachable nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was at a funeral uh, recently, uh, about six months ago, and a total stranger was looking for something, and I was standing in the center of a group of maybe eight people, and like. Uh, arrow to the target the guy came straight to me and asked me whatever the question was and you know it was so funny but he said you've got this approachable face out of everybody here and every everyone is equally kind but he saw my face as the one to ask the question of um and your mom was that way too yes she was i have a shy nature like my mom but i think i've learned to compensate enough for it um, publicly, I'm actually a pretty shy person until I know people one-on-one. I'm probably annoyingly open. <laughs> is, is that, um, is that a defense mechanism? Is it, uh, is it a, a series of walls that you keep, um, just because of experience or is it, uh, that you, that you prefer kind of a one-on-one conversation to a, to a larger group conversation? Uh, I think I definitely prefer uh, one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think of all my good friendships, and I can think of one one-on-one moment or day or event or whatever that sort of uh, marked that friendship and that turn from being just a casual acquaintance to a, a, a treasured friend. And it's hard to... I'll put it this way. I think most people have a group personality and a one-on-one personality Mm -hmm. and uh i prefer my one-on-one personality i think my group personality can turn a little bit into an entertainer (laughs) (laughs) because again my nature is to keep everybody at ease and having fun and laughing um but i love the heart to heart of two people just bleeding out whatever it is whether it's your girlfriend situation or whatever yeah, and that's the part that I, I think um, I, I respond to very much with you is the genuine nature of, of how you connect with people. And I, and I wonder about um, in today's kind of environment, what can, what can you teach, you know, when, when people are now even more self-conscious about saying the wrong thing? What's the, the best way to get over that hurdle? And, and have you seen and have you had to do that with people um, because of where we are today? It, our situation for me hasn't changed much in the way that I deal with people other than um, uh, putting a cap on my own frustration with the situation. Uh, I was mm-hmm. actually working with a fellow technician from a different company today. And someone I've dealt with a few times in the past and uh, probably the most time we've spent together alone working. And we had some very deep conversations about the current status between the virus, uh, Black Lives Matter, rioting, every the full gambit of it, uh, as well as my sexuality, because up until today, he didn't know I was gay. And it really just bled out in the midst of a conversation we were having about something else. 
I don't have that fear of being discovered for the most part because I intentionally came out when I was 21-ish because I didn't want to have to have the second character that I dragged with me all the time. You know, with this crowd, I'd have to put this face up and that crowd the other. And I think that just makes it for me easier to connect to people and relate because I don't have a fear of being discovered, I guess, maybe. Sure. You, t- you took off all the masks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind being wrong in the conversation, though I never am. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's how you learn. Someone's got to challenge what's already formed in your head and give you a reason to analyze it a different way. I want to, I've seen, I, I've known you for 25 years and, uh, there, there are times when I can remember distinctly you cutting through the clutter of a conversation to say the real thing. And I always love the look on other people's faces when you did that, because it was like a, a, a look like, Oh, he's going to go there. <laughs> and I, and I love that. I absolutely adore it because I, I have a, a need to do the same thing that time is too precious to dance around issues. Mm -hmm. So why is it so important for you to do that? Why is it so important for you to be genuine in just about every interaction you have? I think because on many levels I have seen how damaging uh, lies and and, uh, falsehoods can be to a person. Um, even under the best intended circumstances, lies hurt sooner or later. The truth comes out. Um, so I'd much rather be honest. I'd rather be your friend with you knowing me 100% than your friend with that one issue that I know is going to push you over the edge someday. Because that really doesn't help either one of us. It doesn't. But how do you do this? I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm a, as a, as a, as a gay man, mm-hmm. there you've lived through a time from the eighties to now where secret lives where being a gay black man is even harder. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how do you balance that? And how do you know when to push other people or, or to try and help them be more open? And does that, um, make things awkward with friends? Um, as far as my comfort with being gay, uh, I was quite clueless when I was young. Um, I knew I had an attraction to boys my age, um, you know, did scattered little things as a youngin. But it was my very late teens when I suddenly or maybe gradually realized I was different. Um, and when I did, I kind of I had enough knowledge of the fact that Different people do things behind closed doors. People keep secrets. Um, but I also had two cousins that older than me that were gay, uh, both openly gay to the family. So that made it a little less scary to come out. Uh, I wasn't, and it's really funny. I have an act or a, uh, there are times that I pick and choose when to disclose to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a fear of being discovered, but there are certain people that it just doesn't matter. So I don't make it an issue. Um, and to your point of 
I believe you were asking about getting other people to their comfort level. Yeah, I mean, because because you're also you have this way about you that you make people so comfortable mm-hmm. that I can imagine that people who are um, who have secrets that when they find themselves um, connecting with you, that your openness is contagious. And do you do you do you find that um, you have conversations with people about why it's just easier to be more open? why it's easier to to connect with people in a real way. Yes. Yes, I will so being a gay man, you I've met every variety of man from straight man who goes off on a secret mission <laughs> once in a blue moon to someone who's as flaming as flaming can be. Um and I always felt sorry for the men that had to keep this secret. I've known people for years that were married and had the secret life. Now, my coming to age during the the explosion of HIV and AIDS plays a big part. Um, I'm not sure why, but I know it does in the way I deal with being gay. Um... And I really don't know what that magic formula is. There's definitely people that have opened up to me that maybe no one else knew their secret. Um, And I think possibly to the other end as well, because I'm so open about things, there are people that are afraid to open up to me because they think I may expose them. You know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, you've had back and forth with your relationship with your dad and your mom. Um, You've had friends that have, died you've had mm-hmm. you know difficulty you but you seem to be an optimistic person who who doesn't let pain isolate them and it seems that you've somehow built a community um around you that is very supportive when i came out i thought i was going to lose every friend i had maybe have one good one it turned out just the opposite and i only lost one good friend which was amazing to me um but everyone has their cross to bear and there's certainly families out there that make it uh, virtually impossible for someone to live an open and free gay life. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to be prepared to take the ultimate rejection and have your family stop loving you, which unfortunately happens to so many people still Mm -hmm. to this day. Um, And I just, you don't agree, that's fine. You don't encourage, that's fine. I never understood snatching your love away from somebody. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll, here's a real quick aside. I had a horrible uh, evening a few years back, uh, the day a relationship broke up and really was at my rock bottom emotionally. Um, and went out for a couple of drinks, not even caring about whatever the outcome of that evening was. I wasn't necessarily looking for anybody. I was just so depressed I had to be away from the house and out of my own head. And I stumbled into this gentleman, straight gentleman. We never did anything sexually. But we spent three days together just being very real. Conversations, music, and it was such a random, bizarre thing. And for three days, that person was my best friend. Never seen them since. <laughs> so it's a kind of bizarre twist, right? If I wasn't so, and it's, it's part of it is a hunger and a curiosity about people. 
I do enjoy people breaking free from whatever chains it is in their world um, and being honest about their life because we're trained not to do that, right? Especially black men. Mm-hmm. Um, our lives tend to be so much about a facade one way or the other, whether we're overly compensating for the fears that we face in life or whether we're squashed by them. Um, I want to I understand more about that. Mm-hmm. Your dad, um, how did he handle you coming out? My father, I never had a direct conversation with my father about it. He actually died right around the time I came out, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit after. And we had an on again, off again relationship anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I firmly believe that my father suspected my sexuality when I was a child. I think that was part of the wedge between us. Uh, he was he was a complicated cookie anyway, like myself. I, As I've gotten older, I certainly see parts of him that I understand better. Uh, but had he known, I don't think it would have been good. Um, he probably would have disowned me, I, I would suspect. But he could have surprised you, though. Absolutely. Absolutely could have. And the funny thing is, on that side of my family, I don't know of anyone who's gay. Mm-hmm. Um, not that many relatives here that his side migrated up from the Carolinas in the mm-hmm. 50s. Uh, so much of the family is down there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, like you said, he, he could have surprised me, but I don't think he would have. So, so then... As a, as a black man growing up, did you feel like there was a weight on you? You grew up in Lawrenceville, right? You went to Lawrenceville High, New mm-hmm. Jersey. Yeah. Um, not, a, not a huge black population in Lawrenceville? Lawrence, Lawrence had... So Lawrence is interesting. So, you know, the township is Lawrence, and Lawrenceville is technically the borough in the center of it. Lawrence was actually a very good town to be in for black Americans. Back in the 40s and 50s and, you know, throughout, Lawrence was a pretty tolerant town. Um, Most blacks lived in a specific section for the most part. We were the lower middle to lower middle class section. Um, and then there were obviously people that were more affluent that were closer to the Princeton part of Lawrence. But as far as specific racial issues in Lawrence, I don't remember any that strayed too far out of your typical neighborhood turf war kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Granted, I also can be pretty clueless. Um, you know, Again, you mentioned me forming my own little world, my little protective group. I've done that all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in this mostly black, in fact, all black uh, apartment complex. Quite a few of us are related um, just because of the circumstance of when it opened and who found out, etc. Our school was, I don't remember much of anything specifically racial as far as me carrying a burden of being black Mm -hmm. there's always that little incidental thing you hear somewhere but who doesn't you know if you're if you're an italian on the wrong street somewhere you may hear it um this one's easy with a yarmulke you may hear it Mm -hmm. Uh, but our school was pretty darn uh almost idyllic i would say 
right time, right place when I grew up. But it was socially segregated. Most of the black kids hung out together, most of the white kids, but plenty of intermixing, plenty of crossover to the point where younger grade school, I was looked at a little bit more of a, oh, the phrase I hate, an Uncle Tom, a white boy. <laughs> um, because there was more of that separation when we were young because we knew so little of what existed outside of our complex. When I hit middle school, early teens, my group of friends blossomed and I got to meet uh, wealthy white friends, friends of every culture, you know, melting pot, quite like the friends that we knew hanging. Well, for me, I hung around Rutgers. You were actually a student. Um, <laughs> but that's a beautiful. If you could get every American to live that experience for a year. Of that Rutgers setting or uh, just to see how similar people are and how to see how minor the differences are, we'd be, all be better. But so many pe- people are so cozy, they're afraid to even go into that zone. Well, that's a, that's a, you've raised a very, a very important issue, um, which is our group of friends. Um, I have friends from virtually every part of the world. We have, um, you know, friends who grew up in Korea or who spent time in Japan or who have lived in Africa. Um, I found that's not even typical of Rutgers. Yes, <laughs> we are a special so, breed. Absolutely. And, and I wonder about that. Um, you know, we, we have a, a, a friend, Praveen, who grew up in Zimbabwe. And, you know, Hansen, whose real name is Hong, who you know, changed his name to Hansen, gave him mm-hmm. a Dutch last name. Um, and you hear these stories of people being different and then coming together. Um, why and how did that change you? Because I know it changed me. I know it, it gave me an appreciation for the value of people's different experiences, for diversity as something that I wanted to have as a continual part of my life. Did you find the same thing in that experience? Yes, I think it re, for me, it reinforced the way I felt and it made it less of, it made life less of a black and white issue because it was black and beige and yellow and red, you know, the entire rainbow. So these little, these, these, these flare ups that happen constantly about black versus white are so toxic and unnecessary because there are plenty of other people out there. It makes you question, how does it, how does it boil up repeatedly? Who's gaining from it? Because at the end of the day, someone has to be right. That's true. And I want to talk about music now because mm-hmm. of that, because you got me thinking about Polyguana and Baba Hanush, the two bands you were in yes. with Dan. And I was looking at um, the list of the people and you had V who is Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Susan, who is, I think, has Irish background. Dan, who is Cuban, you African-American. Um, Dave Harkern, um, who I think is, you know, kind of typical uh, Caucasian guy. And all of the influences, when you look at the influences, they just run the gamut of soul, funk, rock. Um, 
why is music so important in your life and what do you get out of it that, that people wouldn't normally think is important? Uh, exactly what you just said. It is the big cross connect. Um, again, especially now, when we were younger, music fit more into separate genres, right? Uh, mm-hmm. you, you would have your top 40 stations like WFIL, <laughs> <laughs> where the pop stations, you got a fair, fair mix. But when you really went into someone's home, this person's listening to K-Rock, this one's listening to BLS. So n- throughout the 80s and 90s, music became more homogenized and, and the, the separation of genres, you know, go back to Aerosmith and Run DMC or whatever example you want to choose, but it became harder to base your value as a social group on the music you were listening to. <laughs> and even with that, there's always some thug, thug brute that really, really loves Karma Chameleon. Yes, right? Look, can't get past I that. love Afternoon Delight, and I always have, and I'm not ashamed. Listen, I saw George Michael in concert, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I love the man. <laughs> Yeah. I love his music. Phenomenal. I will continually listen to his music. I like there's, the a, there's a definitely a place for pop. Yep. Um, did you get that from your parents? Because, you know, my dad hated the Beatles. He really? loved doo-wop and Philly soul and hated the Beatles. And my mom was a secret kind of, you know, crunchy granola hippie, hippie person who loved that stuff. And so I could rifle through their music and get a really broad swath of things. Was it that way in your house? I think my father was more of a classic uh, R&B soul person. My mom was more universal. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely, her favorite that I can remember was Lou Rawls. Oh, yeah. um, was my dad's favorite. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. The presence that man has with his voice or had with his voice. Um, but I wasn't taught... I don't think I was ever taught to consider myself separate from other people and when i was young i had that sort of hyper gregarious nature anyway that even if you told me not to go to a certain crowd of people i probably would anyway just despite Mm -hmm. you um uh, a quick moment here so i was born in trenton proper Mm -hmm. born at bellevue hospital lived in trenton for my first six years or so from the day I was born until we left, my best friend's name was Jojo. And Jojo caught it. He caught hell. And I couldn't understand why. And I you know, don't remember specific ages that's so far back in our childhood, in our memories. But basically, my mom explained to me, well, Jojo's father is black and his mother is white. So a lot of people have an issue with black and white being together. And he suffers from it. So that's a lesson that I basically learned from birth that shaped my whole outlook on this, this uh, false idea of race and false idea of you being a different creature than me and debates over the color that Jesus really is and all the other nonsense mm. that's just concocted as a control mechanism for people, for groups, for whatever reason. Um, you know, that it's, I'm just a, a guy that wants to be peace. I call myself the last black hippie. <laughs> There's too much fun to be had from getting along. So why do people choose not to? Well, yeah. And I, and I think that the, um, 
again, I go back to the, to the pain and the fear. Um, my mother grew up in Northern California and Alaska. And when she uh, married my father in Alaska, she came back to the lower 48 on a train. Mm-hmm. And she wound up working her way through the South for whatever reason, how they were processing them. And she got off of the train in North Carolina and just went and got a drink of water at the wrong water fountain. Ooh. And she didn't know. And she was getting all these stares and she didn't really have a context for it. Now, you know, there, there weren't a lot of people of color other than Inuits in Anchorage in the 1950s, right? Right. Uh, unless you came through the army. And my father had a, you know, pretty diverse group of people that he hung out in the army. But when she came to South Philly, she was amazed at the lines drawn in the neighborhoods mm-hmm. that this was the black neighborhood and this was the Hispanic neighborhood and here was the Jewish neighborhood. And she never quite got over that. She found the West coast to be a more open place. Right. She found the East coast to be very, um, not segregated all the time, but certainly there were lines drawn. Um, as you've traveled around the country, have you seen similar things? Is there a difference in different parts of the country? You know, my travels have actually been pretty limited. Um, I have been all all the way up and down the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, a brief visit to Arizona a hundred years ago. Um, I will tell you, for the most part, I see the same thing, at least from New York down to Virginia, for sure. More or less cookie cutter. It's the same thing where you have certain areas that the the blacks will gravitate to, certain areas whites will gravitate to. People like to cluster. They like the comfort of someone next door that has some idea of their struggle. But I, I make sure that the friends I have generally are not segregationists. They are people that like all people. So when I visit my friends in other places, it's like my life here. It's fairly diverse. Some places, my friends will be all black because that's just the group of friends that I initially connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have friends that are, you know, born in the projects, uh, low income, every stereotype you can think of initially. I have a good friend that uh, she was she absolutely was a welfare mother uh, for at least a generation of the family. Um, and uh, I believe it was, I forgot which presidency it was where they started clamping down on a lot of those rules and, and preventing. Yeah, I mean, it was Reagan. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And so she suddenly had to go earn a living. She loved it. Yeah. She, she got fulfilled out of working. She doesn't know how she thought she was happy without it. But we had a system that programmed people to be that way. And once you're born into that, how do you know what the better side is? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so, so I want to, if you're, if you're in a group of friends who are all black, what's the vibe around white privilege and ignorance? Is it, you know, I used to laugh about that football coach who's, you know, they said, coach, you're losing, you've lost the last 15 games. You know, is it ignorance or apathy? And he's like, I don't know. And I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's a good one. (laughs) And I I wonder sometimes, you know, 
behind closed doors when there isn't another white person around? And uh, what's the vibe? Do they think that it's just ignorance? Do they think that, you know, the vast majority of white people don't care that people of color are getting killed, that they're getting shot, that they're getting mistreated? So most black people are most white people. There's no difference. Mm-hmm. Um, most white people conversations end up being just like a sitcom routine or a, 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 you know, a stand-up routine. Mm-hmm. There's no malice behind them. It's that dumb comparison of, of who puts raisins in their potato salad kind of thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. In, in reality, no one cares. And if uh, a white kid walks in the house unattended, he's going to eat the same food as the rest of them and get disciplined the same as the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, very much like when I was younger and first started uh, interacting with the friends of my white, the families of my white friends. Uh, I was, yeah, you know, you could tell a couple of parents were here a little bit, you know, well, I'm not sure about this kid, whether it was instant or whether it was down the line, but I was always embraced and made to be part of the family. To this day, I have, um, I still have three or four white women, pale white women that I call mom, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, when I was young, they treated me just like they would their own kids. And it's the same on the other side. We don't have a lot of, of, uh, Depend again, obviously depending on who you're talking to and what the circumstances. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times the conversation is more about the man, whoever the man may be at that time, and of course it's usually the white man. Yeah, uh, we're in, in a white society. I don't think it's. Uh, you know, there's a. I was watching some Chappelle show yesterday, yeah. and one of his sketches, he was talking about his family's always been dissenters. And there's this one quick clip of a Chappelle ancestor in uh, Africa. And he's complaining about the chief. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Some people are just dissenters. And, it's go- and if they end up in a house full of gold, there's going to be something to complain about with the quality of the gold. Exactly. But no. at the core, I, don't, I really don't see a difference between the families that I have broken bread with, slept in their homes, Greek, Italian whoever everybody's trying to do the same thing yeah i find um that the the cultural things volume is a cultural thing that is Mm. more disruptive yeah volume in my italian household is high volume in my black friend's household is high yes volume in my uh waspy family low yeah low and it freaks me out sometimes because I find my voice being <laughs> the loud voice. And I find those cultural <laughs> things like, uh-oh, I, I got, you know, I went beyond the uh, whatever the volume level is supposed to be. Um, but I also find that they're, the louder the cultures, the more embracing the cultures are. Exactly. They're living with more passion. It's funny. You just spoke the good side of stereotype, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, the stereotype of uh, Big Mama's house on a Sunday. That's a good stereotype. That's all the family fussing and and you know, depending on the black family, mine was fairly quiet. We kept personal things quiet. Some families, you walk in the door in five minutes, you know everybody's business. Yes. And it's not about being shady. It's about that's the way they work it out. Yes. Um, 
Yes, it, and that and and that's a lack of um, a lack of secrets in some cases. Exactly, it, it it may be brutally painful to watch, and sometimes if you're in the middle of it, but at the end of the day, it's all aired out. So there's there's not that lingering back up. There's not that thing that sneaks up and bites somebody that didn't come out. So is that what's happening now? Is is that the the writ large? Is this an airing out? Is this um, for the for the louder ones of us? <laughs> Maybe we've dragged <laughs> along some of the quieter ones. Uh, who you know, like the story about the the white woman with the uh, with the the repairman friend that she uh, oh yeah that yeah she, that she asked about. You know, that's if you can get somebody who normally would not say anything who wouldn't say peep to actually have a conversation. Is that the turn that we're seeing? Are the quiet ones now starting to get involved? I sure hope so, because there's always going to be the loudest on either end of the spectrum, right? It's the quiet ones in between that are the facilitators and the enablers. So they they can, facilitate, can facilitate change once they stop enabling the bad. And quite often people don't know that they're enabling the bad. Um, you don't know how a certain act affects someone if you don't talk to them, right? And it's, it's at some point during the conversation here, I thought about the Southern upbringing of my father's side of the family. And they specifically came up here to escape the racism of the South. Mm. So did I directly deal with racism? Very few points in my life. A handful of minor incidents and none that had any lasting effect on my well-being. But was my personality shaped by the racism that others experienced absolutely no escaping it um whether it was by direct communication of things that happened or purely by you know you mimic your parents actions right you see them negotiate in certain situations you know who they open up to more so now we're at this time where we've become over the last generation so separated from each other there's no you know religion has dwindled away there's no common binding force with our country now that there's no there's no uh cold war going on there's no active you know we had the, the, the mysterious cloud war of the war against terrorism but that's not a specific mm. enemy that could be somebody right next door so people have to start start talking they have to relate their experiences one way or the other the person that is a racist got to dig in their heart and say well why was there a valid reason for it or is this just something I was trained to be all my life and I'm going to stick to it just like I'm always going to vote, going to vote Republican or going to vote Democrat. Mm. Um, but it's the people in between that aren't, that's the ones that can change it because then they can quietly lean on their buddy and go, hey, that wasn't right to say. That guy did nothing wrong to you. Um, you've, you've, you've articulated this, this idea of the other, right? When we all thought we were going to die in a nuclear explosion, you know, mm-hmm. we stuck our heads under the desks and, you know, heard the siren and the, that showed us there was an external threat. Um, without that external threat, or it seems to me we're fragmenting into our own kind of self-described others and pointing over the other side of the fence and saying, well, they're different, therefore we don't like them. <sighs> Would it, your personal values seem to be to actively and aggressively disavow that. Why? What 
was is it because you're a collection of unique situations is it because you grew up in a in a in a way that you saw the value of pushing through maybe um initial barriers what makes you that way when so many other people can retreat into a more isolated maybe more comfortable world um so i do i do retreat i i don't want to talk about race every day mm-hmm. um i you know i want to crazy glue the keys on my phone or my keyboard so i can't go onto facebook and see what the latest nonsense is i think if i for sure a deep part of it is if i look within myself and i'm a very complicated personality and i've done plenty of not good things in my younger life not stealing or being a criminal or anything but certainly things that in the wrong circumstance could have had me dead on the side of the street from a cop that had no patience for it Mm -hmm. Um, so I think how lucky I am to live the quiet, humble little life that I have, that no one tried to squash me for whatever reason. Um, I haven't been gay bashed. I haven't walked out of a club and been jumped. Uh, I'm a lucky one. I think I definitely have a little bit of an underdog syndrome where I'd like to fight for the ones that I see as the ones that aren't getting a fair shake because it's... I'm a little bit more insulated, right? I, I don't have a lot to lose. And there's people that will listen to me that would never even listen to the other person because I'm that guy in the middle. I'm the approachable guy. I'm not Wesley Snipes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not high yellow. You know, just everything about me is this nice middle of the road for the most part. So I can speak to more people. And it makes me a little bit more inspired to speak for the people I've known that have suffered this stuff more directly than I have on both yeah, but, sides. You know, yeah, but I'm going to tell you, I, I'm not going to let you off the hook on this one because you're downplaying who you are and what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, you could isolate yourself. It's not about talking about race. It's about just being a person. Okay. You You float across a bunch of different groups. And I was reading a a study about psychology for teens, the teens that are most successful and have the best coping mechanisms are not the ones who are the most popular. They actually tend to have a lot of problems down the road. It's the ones that float across multiple demographics, right? It's the ones that bounce from click or click to click. Um, you're that guy. And when you say you don't have a lot to lose, you know, you could be a part of a small group of, you know, gay black men that are insulated. You could be a part of, a, you know, a, a bunch of musicians and just hang out with musicians. Um, but you don't. What you seek is variety and challenging and interesting situations. And as a result, you are spreading points of view and experiences that a lot of these groups that you float through normally wouldn't come in contact with. And you're an interesting person because of it. That's what I find unique about you is that you just, I like talking with you <laughs> Be- because you know, you have, I didn't know you didn't go to Rutgers for a year. Oh yeah. <laughs> you, you had just as much, you had just as much to say about the same things we were talking about, whether it was, you know, literature or politics or whatever it was, it didn't matter. Um, 
and you know, you know, Anna Stoyanovich, she and I talk about chameleons mm-hmm. and, um, she watched me learn how to use chopsticks, um, at a restaurant once. And she's like, you didn't know how to use them at the beginning of the meal, but you made it your purpose by the end of the meal to learn how to use them. Right. And I was fascinated by that. What's the value of, of somebody like you, Paul, you're in your early to mid fifties, right? Yep. 53 graduated in 85. So you're at 52, 53, maybe what's the value of you going through the things you've gone through right now? What do you, what can you teach somebody that they may not realize is good to know? Um, cause I, I'm going to, I'm going to give you your own lesson and you can build on it. Cause I, I see it. What you, what you do that I find fascinating is that you talk to people and listen to where their interests are, and then you connect their interests to the things you like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes people very welcomed. It's, you make people feel good talking to you. It's a very, quite honestly, I think it's a well, a well-polished self-serving, uh, you alluded to it earlier, defense mechanism. <laughs> I, I think that. Um, again, I like interacting with people. People generally are interesting. Even the, the dullest lump of mud on the floor, usually they're that way because nobody's paid attention. And you, you poke it with a stick a little bit, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a lot more below here than I thought. Mm-hmm. But the stories overlap. And my... My... Uh, HIV trifecta of death may be another person's cancer trifecta. Um, there's everybody goes through a thing, and I like drawing that thing out of people. It, I do get bored of being around the same group of people all the time. I absolutely do. I, it's one of the things that scares me getting older because you start losing the energy and the ability to do that, right? I, it, it is probably not mentally sound as you get older to be amongst a different group of people every day. Um, but I do thrive on that. I love it because it just makes me feel fuller. I'm not, I've never been a great book smart guy. I'm an intelligent or good side of average guy. Um, but a good chunk of what I've learned has been through my interaction with other people, whether smarter than me, dumber than me makes no difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so in light of that, this is how I want to wrap up because I think you're, if I'm a listener and I'm thinking about why would I want to pay attention to the allies podcast, it's because there are certain patterns of behaviors with people who can bridge a gap. Yes. One of them is that you like people, you know, that you find their stories interesting. Another one is that you're not elitist you know, I found that intelligence is universal and opportunity isn't always. And there's a difference between being intelligent, being educated. Um, and they don't necessarily match up a number of really dumb, well-educated people. Um, so, so what right now? So what that we've got people marching in the streets, you know, so what that my little town had a, um, had a rally of 67 people in a soccer field in the suburbs mm-hmm. and it was half 
African-American and half white people. So what? Why does it matter now that all this is happening? And then the next question is, now what? What happens next? So start with the so what. Why does it matter? So what? Because the example is being seen. Um, for those that think they are in the majority being racist or supporting. Um, and just to make it clear, I don't care if people are racist. It's, it's, it's your God-given right to hate me for my skin color, for my foot size, whatever it is. It's a problem when you impede my advancement as a human being. It's a problem when you kill me when my life means less, point blank. So mm -hmm. for those that have that mindset that a black life, or for that matter, any group other than theirs is less important, there's people banding together of every color and showing, mm, we all feel like we should be equal. So whatever it is you're feeling, you should notice that there's a whole bunch of us standing on the same part of this issue right now. So then knowing that if the people who are racist have felt emboldened to be more racist, and if the structures haven't changed, and we're now in the point where we're pointing them out and saying enough, what has to happen next? What has to happen is people have to accept that protesting lunatic cops that kill people on the street in front of dozens of witnesses are a problem across the board and their actions hurt everyone, not just the person that died. And you can take go on a long chain of events that happen after the fact, the fatherless children, the mother that now goes on the welfare because there's not enough income coming into the house, the 300 stores that just got ransacked and burned up because the people are tired of seeing their own die over and over again. It makes no sense to be racist. It makes no sense to condone the activity of bad cops and let them stay in a comfortable job. Which it usually is, by the way. Yes, by nature, they put their lives at risk. But don't people put police into this category like they're out in the middle of Af Afghanistan every day in the middle, at the height of the war. That's not yeah. the truth. So yeah. there's no reason that the police unions or the police brass should be protecting the bad seeds. They should be weeded out immediately. People need to put pressure on those, those entities to do exactly that. Um, it's hard to pressure these unions because we know unions have a stranglehold on power. That's exactly what they exist for now more than actually helping the workers. But let's face it, these police departments, uh, insurance companies, right? If insurance companies crippled them with the premiums the way bad drivers get crippled, well, there'll be a lot more incentive for the police departments to get rid of the bad seats, right? Mm. If, your premiums, right. if your premiums double or triple by bringing that one cop on onto the force or letting him stay, well, that, that helps weed out some of the bad seeds. But most of these incidents we've seen, we've seen uh, standby. Uh, bystanders do nothing. And those bystanders were other men in uniform. So not only was the person who per perpetrated the crime breaking his oath, but the, those surrounding him were breaking their oath to protect and serve. Because... Even though this person is suspected of committing a crime, you still owe it to society to protect him to the best of your ability. So I'm going to end on a positive note because that is uh, a somewhat chilling comment. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, today, the Supreme Court ruled that it is illegal to discriminate against LGBTQ community um, around their jobs. And so Title VII, the, the opinion was delivered by Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was uh, added to the court during the Trump time. Mm -hmm. And so is it encouraging when you see a conservative court come out on the side of LGBTQ rights? Um, I have killed the conversation. No, I mean, honestly, is, is, <laughs> is it that the law was that strong? I mean, is it, is it that, you know, as a broken, you know, clock is right twice a day? Um, I, I, I think, I think it's good that people are realizing what should have been to begin with. Um, okay. You know, I, yes, it's, it's a good like, thing. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm overanalyzing the part. Yes. No, 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 it's great. It's like, baby, should eat. who's going to argue with that? You know, every, yeah. every person deserves not to be discriminated against. But we're, okay, we're, no, that's, that's good. It's, we're, we're getting back to a normal. Yeah, but we're at this point where people are, are, are counter-protesting the fact that a black man, you know, it's like, okay, so should he be killed in the middle of the street? Is that what the point you're trying to make? So why are you fighting yeah. against the logic of not killing a citizen for a minimal crime? Why is it so important for you to fight against that? Because... What I've seen, and I know I'm rambling a little bit, but what I've seen is that people hear Black Lives Matter. They take that as a threat instead of listening to what it is about. They take it as a hostile attack on white people. That's just a convenient out not to pay attention. Sure. And we are and, and maybe that's the, the best way to, to end. Um, if you keep the conversation going, you get past the convenient out. Yes. And you get to the meat of the matter. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe the thing that I admire most about you is that you uh, you don't give anybody the communion out, my friend. I enjoy that. Yeah, Thank to you. a flaw. <laughs> to a flaw. That's perfect. Well, so, so that's all the time we have, uh, Paul. It was it was a delight. I, uh, I always love talking with you. Uh, and in particular, uh, I think you're, you are an insightful voice. And you do not give yourself enough credit for the role you play amongst your friends in, um, in, in connecting people. So I want to thank you for that, too. I, I thank you very much for this opportunity and your ongoing support. Uh, All right, I love brother. when I see your posts. <laughs> well, that makes uh, at least one of us. Uh, I get, a, I get a lot of pushback on some of my posts, but thank you. Um, all right. So everybody, that's uh, that's all the time we have with my friend, uh, Paul Davis. Tune in next time uh, with the Allies podcast. I can't tell you who we're going to talk to, uh, but it will be another person who is interested in sharing uh, ways to connect us rather than divide us. So this is uh, Carmen Farino. Thanks for listening.